Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for readers who want something strange and exciting and writers who need something new. If you want to support this podcast, please consider buying my new book, The National Gallery. I'm extremely proud of this book because it may be my best book, and it is certainly my most personal and heartfelt book. But just because I say it's heartfelt doesn't mean it isn't full of weirdness, like sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and elegies for my dead iPhone. Uh, For a limited time, if you buy a copy of the National Gallery directly from me, I will sign it, and I will also send you a signed copy of my previous book, The Politics of Knives, for no additional cost. So you can order the book and get your free book uh, with it at thenationalgallery.ca. That's thenationalgallery.ca. I'm also excited because it is my 10-year anniversary as an author. My first book, Ex Machina, was published in October 2009, and to celebrate, uh, now that it is 2019, as I record this, I've made Ex Machina available as an ebook for the first time. It was never available as an ebook previously, uh, and I'm giving that ebook away for free at jonathanball.com/freebook. So, uh, go to jonathanball.com/freebook, and you can sign up, uh, get. All my ex- exciting news uh, when it's you know exciting and new, uh, and other free resources that I'll just you know send you as I create them, uh, plus a free book. Um, and again, you can go to the nationalgallery.ca uh, if you want to find out more about my new book uh, and get a free uh, book as well when you order that. So three, two free books and a paid book <laughs> available to you. In any case. Um, Let's get into the show. So I'm here with Cam Scott, the author of Romans Snowware, out of ARP Books. And uh, Cam, I want to just, you know, first off, ask you about uh, some of the the influences behind uh, this project. Because, like, I read this book. We're sitting in Winnipeg here, and you know, you're kind of sometimes in Winnipeg, sometimes in New York. You know, you're, you, but but. You know, I kind of met you here, and you kind of you grew up here, did you not? I did. Yeah, yeah. and so, and, and but weirdly, like I think both of us share a certain influence. Maybe you a bit more so uh, of the Kootenai School of Writing, you know, and, and particularly uh, there's a local uh, poet, Colin Smith, here, who was really integral to some of the work I did. Like my previous book, uh, The Politics of Knives, had a lot of feedback from Colin and and you know he was really important in that work and he was a he's a figure associated or, or in the Kootenai School of Writing movement uh, which in Canada was uh, at a particularly important like historical poetry movement mm-hmm. um, and he is a, a person Colin Smith if you're listening is a person who's kind of underappreciated like in that whole movement so that movement has a lot of great figures uh, like some who are like Lisa Robertson, one of my favorite writers, who's not like super associated with that movement, but it does come out of it. Uh, figures like Jeff Dirksen, who's very you know uh, associated with that movement and, and, and a you know a major figure in it uh, as well. But then Colin Smith, to me, was the one who was doing the best work uh, at the time, at least, and who you know his book Multiple Poses kind of suffered from a weird thing where the binding glue made the books. It was improperly manufactured. The books started to fall apart. So they, they get, became kind of rare and hard to find even within this realm of like rare, hard to find, you know, experimentalist work. And then additionally, um, 
I mean, he didn't really follow it up till I forget when exactly, but 8 by 8 by 7 is his sort of follow-up book. Right now, if you're listening to this, you, you should go get a book called Multiple Bippies, which came out recently. Yes. Which kind of reprints a lot of Colin's uh, earlier work and has a bunch of new work. But Colin Smith's work is really, you know, something. And I can definitely see, like, the influence of the KSW and Colin Smith and maybe even, like, figures like Jeff Dirksen mm-hmm. and, and Roman Snowmare. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about maybe that influence or just, like, how, how you kind of came... What's the sort of story and in a nutshell of like how you came to write this book and some of the kind of key maybe influences on there because 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 i know that uh, just having known you over the years i know this this has been a long time in the making of this particular book yes yes and that's a very that's a very collegial reading that i i deeply appreciate because the ksw or at least the after image of the ksw you know um, i think that today people will Dispute how um, how how well it functions as a collective in the present, and um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people would tell you that its energies are somewhat dispersed. But the influence of the KSW was tremendous, and. I mean, as, as, as I think a Canadian reply to a lot of um, language writing and new narrative. And I think you could even argue, it's tricky because jumping back and forth between the United States and Canada, I realize how incredibly salient and foreboding for some people that border is, you know, that people in the United States do not read Canadian writing, that they should be... I don't know that I say should, maybe should is not the right word, but that I think they would thrill to if they knew it existed. And obviously the reverse is less true. Um, Hmm. But there's a West Coast axis, you know, that is probably much more relevant an affinity than a Canadian or an American thing. You know, I think the writing in Vancouver probably partook freely of Bay Area experimental writing um, and there's a really lively interchange to a greater degree even than it was informed by what was going on in eastern Canada so so you know uh, there's a kind of an internationalism to the KSW but is that how you kind of got like did you kind of get into that work uh, when did you get into that kind of work did you did you because I um like I met Colin and I had kind of known what he was doing and stuff. And then I sort of later like started to learn more about the KSW. Mm-hmm. So I, in a weird way, like he was kind of my entrance into that. Absolutely. I didn't even know he was associated with it until like later, <laughs> like after having known him for years. Yeah. He's a modest guy. The, uh, I, I think I was tangentially aware of some of the, the bigger names who kind of, uh, found their own, I don't want to say larger context, but someone like Lisa Robertson, who's more widely sure. read certainly than Colin. Uh, mm-hmm. Who I, I realized the microphone wasn't picking up uh, me nodding emphatically yeah. <laughs> while you were speaking about Colin, yeah, yeah. but he's tremendous. I I might have been aware of some discrete names, but I think the vibrancy of the collective, you know, mm-hmm. and that collectivity within which context it, I, I, I know Colin would insist that it's hard to cherry pick, you know, sure. because he identifies with the collective I think so strongly and and um, 
you know, in spite of which his writing is really, really, really uh, singular and, and, and tremendous. Um, so almost name for name, that stuff became very important to me, but Colin was feeding me books. You know, we were, we were, we were hanging out and he was introducing me to all kinds of writing that had been totally inaccessible to me. Mm. Um, and that was hugely exciting. Um, I think that the KSW as a, again, a Canadian corollary of new narrative in particular would have been a, a huge influence. Mm-hmm. And then Colin made really important introductions in my life as well to Kevin Killian and Dodie Bellamy and people doing kinds of experimental life writing that might, I think, inform the, the initial layers of Roman Snowmare more than almost anything. Can you talk a bit about like what Roman Snowmare is? Like, uh, can you describe just like how the book kind of works a little bit, and particularly how that Romans poem uh, kind of moves throughout the book? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I'll, I'll start because I just mentioned Kevin Kelly, and I'll start with the title. I so loved Kevin's book Argento series, um, which is a wonderful. Uh, for the listener who wasn't aware, book of poems commemorating, I would say, uh, AIDS dead. You know, the author's um, immediate company, friends and lovers decimated by AIDS. You know, it was written, I think, through the the height of the plague years. Um, And it's very tonally complicated because it's riotously funny and intertextual and draws in so much. It's um, it's the AIDS epidemic viewed through the prism of Dario Argento films. And it's such a complicated kind of elegy. I loved that book so much. And I was going to San Francisco and, um, you know, requested an audience with Kevin Killian and Colin Smith obliged me and put us in touch. And I went down there and I hung out with Kevin Killian and Dodie Bellamy and we had a great weekend and at the end of it having hit it off Kevin was like oh you should send me your writing so I sent him this manuscript that I was working on that was called Roman Snowmare and he wrote back to me and he itemized the things he liked and he was emphatic about what he didn't and he said you know he said Cameron can do better I remember he said that (laughs) (laughs) he used the the full name right Cameron not Cameron and I so um, I took that very seriously and I appreciated his time, but he said, I love the title. Mm-hmm. So I decided, okay, I'm going to throw out the entire project and I'm going to keep the title. <laughs> We're going to start really? from scratch uh-huh. with the title that has Kevin Killian's blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have been in 2011. And very little of that first draft remained. Um, what Roman Snowmare really is it originates alongside a lot of research that I was doing into the basis for B.P. Nichols' life poem, The Martyrology, in his um, psychoanalytic training, and thinking about kind of uh, 
serial seriality versus modularity where big, sprawling, lifelong writing projects were concerned. I was comparing Robin Blaser's Holy Forest to BP Nickel, and I was thinking mm. about uh, Rachel Blaudet-Plessis and Ron Silliman and Louis Zukofsky and people who write these um, enormous poems that are basically commensurate with uh, the scale of a life. And I think because of, uh, of the prairie equivalents written by you know, Robert Croach and Dennis Cooley and so on, you know, uh, great, sprawling, almost auto-ethnographical poems, I, I was thinking about how to embark on something on that scale. Hmm. It's kind of like an interminable self-analysis almost. And at the same time, I was deeply blocked up in my own writing. And I had these notebooks, notebooks upon notebooks, I think, as every writer does, of poem germs, little scraps of found language, sentences that I liked that occurred to me that I thought would instigate poems at a later date. Um, and I was puzzling over this, uh, this predicament, which is the feeling, I, again, I think this would be familiar to writers, that I was always writing and never writing, you know, never realizing anything. So I decided executively to just collapse the distance between all of these discrete lines, written days, weeks, months apart from each other, and just try to vacuum pack the... Hmm. the the little poem germs comprising these notebooks. And the the texture of the poem, I guess for those listening, Roman Snowmere is usually prose um, and quite disjunctive prose. Uh, the texture of the poem derives from that operation that I just thought that I would compile all the lines and see what sorts of repetitions and cross associations and rhythmical effects resulted. And I really liked the result. And the first layer of that is, I don't know on what page of this book, um, in the season of goose flesh and sweaters, every threshold is tested is the first line of the first layer of what would become Roman Snowmere. Um, and since then, somewhat executively, it's just become this experiment in large-scale and durational um, aggregation of text. I write a sentence, at least one sentence every day. I don't limit myself. If I want to write three, I'll write three. But the most um, compelling sequences of sentences that seem very much to have to do with one another usually are written quite separately and that's pure serendipity where the writing is concerned so it's it's basically it's just a project in in daily writing writing and compiling when you have nothing to say <laughs> <laughs> how does it relate does it or does it relate at all to your um uh, like your, your your previous one of your bio your bio in this book lists you as a non musician, which I think is really funny because <laughs> you know I first met uh, Cam uh, uh, 
with like through like my, my friend who was in a band with him. Yeah. Uh, and like this, this band, uh, your band at the time was called Guns, Liquor, and Whores. But then you changed the name to Under Pressure. And like I remember, like and you'd played in other bands as well. And like so, um, and, and Cam was the like, vocalist, lyricist, you know, for uh, that band and others. And so I'm wondering, like, to what degree uh, does any of this have to do with your like? Your, your life in music more than I know I'm sure um, but it's interesting because I came up singing in and playing in a variety of punk bands um, yeah like a lot of punk hardcore kind of thing yeah and I feel like for me like I, I kind of came up in like grunge and metalish bands, but I was very much like a punk sort of ethos, you know, to what I was doing. I felt a lot, and 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 I first started writing poetry and like learning to write when I was writing. So I had was I had I began writing as like seriously after I had been transcribing because like back in the days of grunge or like in high school, you know, I would get like cassettes and record things off the radio and like from friends and stuff. So I would get all you'd get all these grunge songs and like you wouldn't know what they were saying. You couldn't make out what they were saying. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have a lyric sheet, and so when the end, so I, you you know, but I always wanted to know what they were saying, so I'd like listened closely and I'd write down what I they were saying, you know, just to have like my own little handwritten lyric sheet. And what happened was at a certain point, you know, the internet comes in, or you can order a, a CD because I was in a very small town, so like there's no record stores or anything. But once in a while, I would like order a CD through the mail or something, and eventually I'd get a hold of the real lyrics, and it was always massively different from like what I thought they were saying. And what I noticed as, is at a certain point, like there's certain moments where like I liked my line better, like the thing <laughs> I thought they were saying better than what they were actually saying. And so I started just kind of from that writing alternate lyrics for songs. And then that kind of like, so like my kind of poetic practice sort of came out of mishearing grunge lyrics and like hardcore punk like yeah. songs and like yeah. not really understand what they were saying because they were shouting or screaming or mumbling or whatever. And like, so to me, like there's a really clean line from like that whole style of music and the kind of surrealistic lyrical approach that you often have like in, in that kind of music uh, and the kind of DIY or political ethos of it mm-hmm. to some degree. Like my work's not especially political, but once in a while, like it has that kind of weird elliptical fragmentary politics to it. And I see like, I, I can see like that influence in a sense in what you're doing. But I wonder, like, how much that is a thing you see or can, like, trace to your development as a writer. I see it more in retrospect. And when you and when you describe those experiences, you know, I think that it makes a lot of sense, first and foremost, that I, 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 my politicization was absolutely within punk music. And I think that that's an important... Uh, thread of this book, which, you know, for a relatively opaque piece of writing, I hope still wears its um, kind of leftist uh, political convictions on its sleeve. I don't know that books have sleeves, um, <laughs> but on its spine. Yeah. Um, and I might have answered that question at one point by being like, oh, well, you know, punk is, is, is at this point in my life, not so much a rigidly demarcated genre as a portable ethic that you can take mm. with you and apply to different pursuits and different mediums. And I think that's true. I think that's true. Definitely the 
ethos of not having participated in it, but having been inspired by it where we started, the ethos of the KSW, I'm not sure that it's so unrelated. You know, it's a very, very DIY. Still that anarcho DIY Mm -hmm. leftist. Yeah. um, A collective approach. And the idea that you have to create your own infrastructure somewhat in terms of the manifest content of what I'm saying. I mean, certainly, I mean, there's a bit of an irony. You mentioned the first band I played in. We had just, you know, just like... Was that the first band you played in? Guns, Liquor, and Whores? Or? The first serious band. Yeah. And, you know... Which I was, was a straight-edge band at the time. It was. Until and, Pat joined it. And we changed the name. the name because, you know, I, I was a, it was a, a very... It was, it was a very juvenile, antagonistic yeah. posture. We weren't trying... I wish to take this opportunity to say we weren't <laughs> trying to shame anyone's sexuality. Yeah. We would not... Um, I remember you specifically changed it at the time to Under Pressure, like naming it after this Queen song. Yeah. I remember like being really interested <laughs> in it at the time. Um, which also happens to suit an angsty punk band, I think. Mm-hmm. And and that was when we got really serious, you know. Um, on yeah. one hand, we had a sense that the stakes were elevated because we didn't want to have this um, unfortunate joke moniker. But also, we made a lot of records and we toured a lot. And... I think that the lyrics at that point for me, I really did feel like it was a matter of life or death, but they, I think, evince a lot of the pitfalls of the genre. I, I, I love a lot of those songs, and also I listen to them, and it's this uh, display of kind of, how to say, narcissistic self-loathing that's yeah. a staple of the genre. It is a staple. I mean, the, the song I, Under Pressure is a great band, by the way, if people are listening and can get a hold of Under Pressure. I don't know where it's available or how it's available. Um, I think it's streaming. I I've got all the records and stuff, yeah. but uh, yeah, if it's streaming, you should definitely go check out Under Pressure because they, they were a great band. And the, the, the album that I was, um, uh, that I thought was a little, you know, that my favorite was song was the song Come Clean, which mm-hmm. is really great. Uh, track in a lot of respects and um, but anyway but I can see what you're saying so so in some ways when you come into this book uh, and like you're you're looking at the page I guess it seems to me like on one hand you're pulling the influence of maybe some of that uh, like musical influence and then on the other hand you're moving away from like the limitations of the genre in a, in a manner of speaking. Well, what you pointed out, I hadn't thought about it until now, but the way that I wrote lyrics for that band and certain of the affects that are woven into the title poem are identical. I, 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 I haven't, I haven't grown that much, hmm. um, are identical to, I think the, the manifest content of the under pressure uh, songbook, as it were, I wrote the same way. I had notebooks that were just filled with sentences, you know, a single line. And I would think, okay, well, when we have to record the song, when we have to actually have lyrics, I'll dig through the notebooks and I'll, I'll put something together. It's a lot more trepidatious doing a book, I think, than a band because it's a solitary endeavor. You don't sure. you don't have those people pushing you to completion, which is probably um, one of the reasons for the texture of the book. You know that it that it wound up being um, more diaristic because it's just a more solitary it's a more solitary endeavor than than, so- than songwriting collectively. 
Did you find it hard to make that transition? Like, what, what, what to you is the hardest part of like putting a book together? Because you know, this is your first book, which is you know a, a daunting thing for a lot of people. And like, some people rush the first book out, and some people you know are slow to do their first book. So like, you and I are both in the slow camp. Yeah. You know, in the sense that you know we we took a a while to get it out. Like, um, um, after having written for a long time, like. Uh, it, so I guess like, what, did you ever feel like, for you was it just a matter of like frustration that you weren't finished this book, it wasn't up to your standards, or was there like some reason you were taking, did it just keep changing? Like what was the sort of, uh, how, what was it like to write the book in, in that sense, if that makes sense, if that's a, if, sure. do you understand the question? Like, yeah. like for me it was, I was very particular and I did a lot of stuff and threw out a lot of stuff because I just didn't, I'd seen so many people put out a first book and then they were ashamed somehow of the first book. And like, I just, and I felt that, and for certain people I saw that was preventing them from doing a second book. So like, I made a very specific decision of like, I'm gonna take it really slow, I'm gonna really do a lot of stuff before I get this book out. And by the t- and then my deal in my head was like, and by the time the book comes out, I want to have a second book accepted. <laughs> so like, I was very, you know, kind of a weird combination of like slow, taking my time and rushing, you know. At so, but it was very particular to me for me. So I don't know. I'm curious to how you, how you approached it. Like, were there like blocks that you had a hard time getting past? Or, or I, I, w- I I wish I I, I I wish I could say that. I was always purposed at something like the uh, the artifact we have in front of us under discussion today. I had definitely, however, circulated a few years ago, I guess, some inferior versions, you know, mm-hmm. that were just thinner, that just had less to them. I mean, I, I recall that story of Kevin Killian saying Cameron can do better. Um, I appreciate that kind of admonishment because because this book and this is this is a little different perhaps than your projects which are it, it strikes me each of your books is very is very self-contained yeah is is, is and is, is 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 very complete and even your most recent which is the most like a collection that you've done is 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 is, is very um, thematically contained, and, and whereas this book is sort of a few threads that could have been separate books. And at one time, I envisioned them. The Unsummoned is a long kind of anti-travelogue, and I'd envisioned that as a separate project from Roman Snowmare. And it sort of came to me gradually that these things benefit from being placed in proximity to each other. How did it feel when you got that kind? Because uh, Gregory's walking around in the background here and me and him, before you, <laughs> earlier today we were talking about like how, how on one hand as a writer you need like this belief and this vision in what you're doing that you have to be able to like work path through mm-hmm. and despite criticism. But on the other hand, you can't really get better unless you can accept criticism. Like you have to have a weird, um, you have to hit a weird position where you are attached to the work and it matters to you but also you can disconnect enough to understand like that outside point of view but it, so it's like a weird thing where you have to like le- basically learn to take uh, people just like criticizing the work and, and like 
take it like it has to be personal to you, but you have to not take it personally in a strange way. I'm just wondering like how yeah. that, how did you like learn to do that? Because some people, uh, you know, what they'll do when they get remarks like that, especially by somebody that like they admire is they'll just be crushed and they'll destroy them. They'll quit. They'll throw the thing <laughs> away and they'll never come back to it. And other people like, you know, maybe they feel like that here and there, but they kind of manage to, you know, accept it and understand where it's coming from. And, you know, and, and move forward with it. I'm just curious, like, to, like how did you uh, manage to view that in like the right way, <laughs> versus mm-hmm. like, you know, how, how sometimes people can take like that can just like that same comment uh, could have like totally destroyed you in this project if you were just thinking about it in a different way. It's so like, what's your? I guess what? Like, I guess my question, because I, I was struggling with this, is like people sometimes. I don't know how to like advise people about this sometimes because they'll be like, well. Like a lot of times I'm trying to give advice to people and it's like, well, I don't even understand the question because like I would never have done this. Like I would never react that way. And so I don't know how to explain to you that you shouldn't react that way, but it's not that you're wrong, like to have that reaction necessarily. Like, so I'm curious to know, like when you got that kind of comment, like what was your initial reaction? I... I'm thinking back. Do you know? Like, do you remember like the process of like how you moved to like forward with the project at that point, rather than say abandoning it? Because you, yeah. you did it. We, I mean, you threw out a bunch of it. You said, but like, uh, I, I well, I, I I think that the thing that would potentially have been devastating that in this in this case sort of furnished the writing this very productive. Um, traction, the traction of identification. Do you know what the person? administering the critique Mm. in this case Kevin you know I loved his writing and he is was um, I should say actually because I was recommending his books earlier that that, that when I'm speaking of Kevin in this um, in in, in this uh, in this interview always the book is dedicated to him he passed away earlier this summer quite uh, suddenly and I think a whole world of queer experimental writing is really reeling from that passing. But one thing that Kevin was so, so expert about, he was such a consummate supporter of everybody. So I think partly it has to do with his, his manner. He administered the critique just so, Mm. you know, he didn't say this is a disaster. He said, (laughs) do better, you know, which, um, I felt like I had to live up to the advice, you know? I couldn't simply narcissistically despair of the writing altogether. Because that would have been self-protective in some way, too. You know, to give up on something is uh, to despair totally and to not be able to dwell in the uncertainty of... um, You know, the uncertainty of being midway through a creative project and also not being able to dwell in like basically like adequacy to one's own design. I'm not very I'm not very precious about it too. Is maybe were another ever, thing to were say. Were you ever precious about it? Like, is that something you had to get over, or is it just you never? I don't never really. Worked? I don't think so. I, I'll, yeah. I'll credit this to Punk too. You know, is I always had this idea that it's it's good and valuable to be making things so that you can see yourself on however modest a scale reflected 
in the world around you, you know, that you can exert this minimal agency over um, the, you know, the, this minimal agency within the context of like a, a little microculture that you belong to, you know? And I always was very happy to toil uh, in community with, I think, the goal of you know, with, with some pretty, with some pretty modest goals ultimately, um, in mind, but that's the key word. Like, why was it not devastating? If you're accepting critique in a, in a, in a collegial fashion from, uh, people you admire who, if you, if you, if you sincerely believe that they care, that they care about your project. That's that's. Re- I was so flattered by the interest that Kevin had. He, sure. did, he didn't need to read it. Colin Smith was the first reader of the poem that became the Unsummoned. Uh, I said as a thread in this book, and it was just exciting to be working something out in conversation with them. You know. Colin gave me a great piece uh, in Politics and Knives is a poem uh, called Cycle which is about Alfred Hitchcock's mm-hmm. cycle and it ends with um, the last thing that, one of the last things in Cycle is you know Perkins's character has him taken over by the mother personality and he's he's thinking in this interior monologue you know he sees a fly and he's like I'm not even going to swat that fly and they'll watch me and they'll say why she wouldn't even hurt a fly um, and I had like a line kind of mirroring that, you know, and, and Colin had suggested, he, he was like, you know, I see what you're doing with all this, but I, why not make it a question? You know, why would we even harm a fly? And like now pull it into like the weird realm of like a strange, like almost ethical uh, question of like, why, you know, would do humans do anything? harmful in this world and, 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 like, and like that widening out all because it's very ins, as you were saying before like my stuff my books are very insular projects um, and even within those they'll have like these very insular like sections you know and they're very um, self-contained like I'll have certain things that kind of go across the books or across or bet- across like sections in the books but then like even those moments are really you know specific and yeah um but I, so I like it. To me, it was like inval. Like so, like what? He, so his suggestion, they've kind of like you know, take that moment and without like kind of ruining what I was doing, like start widening it out and like suggesting like giving a suggestion just beyond like this. Um, uh, I don't know what like this kind of insularity. Like I, I found like that commentary sometimes. Yeah, it's just like it's not the way you think sometimes, <laughs> right? And so it's like, you need sometimes just that, that friction of um, this other way of thinking that you can't necessarily get when you're just kind of in your head, especially if your work is designed, but, but from a person who say, they understand what you're doing. You know, yeah. like, like that's the thing I thought was, like Colin has a, you know, a, a long history of editing and so on. Like, and he has, I just thought it was a very insightful and incisive kind of moment. And I could see instantly, oh, okay, I see exactly like how he he gets what I'm doing and he's just kind of grabbing literally the like at the last line, start like broadening it a bit. 
so it doesn't like ruin or touch what you already were doing, but it starts to like give this greater resonance to everything. Plus it is, you know, a question mark, which, you know, it sounds weird, but like, I don't use a lot of question marks. Even when it's a question, I won't put a question mark a lot of times, <laughs> you know, like, and so like it has all sorts of like these weird, um, I don't know, it's just a really brilliant little comment. And I find like, it's, it's sometimes hard when you get like comments like that because it's literally, it's not how you would do it. But then like, sometimes like that's what you need is like to kind of break out of your style a little bit. I find it such a weird, I don't know, what's your thought on this? Like, I find like as a writer, it's so hard to get your style and you like work so hard to develop a style. And then once you develop that style, you have to start figuring out how to break out of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, like, what are you going to do next? I guess is like kind of what it bleeds into. Like, where are you at now that you've you know, finished this book and it's out and it's here? Like, where are you at now? And like, are you thinking about like, uh, about like, what you're doing now in relation to this at all. Like, cause some people like, you know, they just kind of pursue, uh, like some people pursue, uh, I don't know, a, a set of obsessions throughout their writing life. Some people just like move from project to project and they're just cons- developing a style and other people like, you know, like me are just like, they're doing projects and they're not, they kind of have to reinvent a new style for each project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not necessarily the best way to work. It sounds arduous. Yeah, um, it is. But, you know, but and it's not like, it's actually in many ways, it's worse idea, yeah. <laughs> but like, even like artistically, it arguably is a worse idea because you're not building a body of the work in, in a direction in, in the same way, yeah. but, but it's just a different way to work things. I guess I'm kind of curious to know what, Every time I see somebody put a book out, I always think, I'm curious what their second book's going to be. Well, that's like, so tricky idea, because... Like, where you're moving with it? There's a level on which, there's a level on which, though this book collects writing going back as far as maybe 10 years. Sure. The next book could simply be Roman Snowmare. Because yeah. I, 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 and as a courtesy to uh, ARP who need <laughs> to market <laughs> this this uh, saleable object called Roman <laughs> Snowmare, I will not call it that. But... That'd be kind of interesting. I've always wanted to do something like that. <laughs> well, like 10 books in the same title. The original, <laughs> because this is the idea, is that every poem, and it's it's quite, it's sort of arbitrary, you know, it might be a section of a notebook. Mm-hmm. Normally, the, the, the logic behind the demarcations, why is this prose block Romans, why does it begin and end here? It really is as simple as well the notebook breaks off i had to write down a bunch of phone numbers or something you know and and it'll pick up elsewhere um Mm -hmm. but every poem in that sequence is called either um romans or snowmare and in the in, in, in the version that i submitted to kevin's attention in the first place that had a very very clear logic you know the near anagram you know roman like roman like Novel. It was supposed to be a yeah. kind of novelistic layer. And then there was going to be this kind of dreamlike obverse, almost a shadow of the other text. So the name had this very literal significance. And I was liked... It just too clean? Was it too... Well, and I, you know, and I, li- I liked Roman Snowmare. He was like, I love, I love the, the title is this near anagram. And I felt like he got it. This returns to what I was saying. It's easy and it's even flattering to accept criticism from people who get it, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, and can even advance your project in ways that you wouldn't have thought. He's like, you know, it's, it's a near anagram, but 
there's kind of a material remainder, you know, um, like sounds, but there's these leftover um, undigestible letters. And then in the in the present version, I was really interested in Snowmare as it's kind of the unconscious driver of the project, you know? It's really not that this layer corresponds to my dream journaling and this layer corresponds to quotidian incident. It's that they're... One is always backed with the other and the naming is a little bit arbitrary because every section weaves... um, weaves those together I'm a little I'm a little off topic I work on the poem every day you know as I said um, it was my solution to having a poor work ethic and um, no project I <laughs> I'm, I'm nothing if not motivated because now I have a project that is potentially commensurate with my I think that's my life. one of the most you know useful things to do as a writer is to figure out like how it is it that I work like because I think often as a writer you have you hear about other people and how they work and you think well I should do that or I should you know and sometimes it's a good idea and sometimes it doesn't work for you for whatever reason yeah you know and like I find often there's like an idea in your head about what like a writer should be and then there's like the thing you're doing and it it can never really fully match that writer you think you Mm -hmm. should be often and and I I think like a lot of times it's like people try to close the gap and I think like what's maybe more valuable is to figure out like what's interesting in the gap <laughs> like and, and like what I what I started doing uh, where I, when I started to really move forward as a writer was when I started just figuring out like if I just had an architecture of a project that would allow me to put things inside of it <laughs> then I could like put anything inside of it like uh, and and, and, I, and, it, and it, as long as it like fit in this architecture it would work and that would allow me to do all these different things because I was always interested in doing a lot of different things and so what I eventually figured out was as I was, I was doing writing all the time but I was never finished completing anything and what I eventually figured out was if I just can conceive of a complicated but very concise architecture for a book then I can really fill that with some with madness mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it can be both be you know that and then it starts to just become a tension uh, a thing where I'm just managing a tension between like having a very specific cathedrally constructed like tight structure yeah. and then like inside of it I can just try to just break it apart and go wild like uh, it's like like I'll write a sonnet but then I'll make it about Leatherface and like I'll it won't even have words in it anymore <laughs> you know like like I'll just at one point when one of my songs about Leatherface is just instead of 14 lines it's a line and a half and it's a quote from Shakespeare I didn't write any of the words <laughs> you know like but it's still like laid on the page like I laid it out you know, to accord with how these like the facing page has 14 lines and it's like in this particular position and it's positioned exactly how like the text would be in the Shakespeare you know uh, edition and it thematically is about the same thing you know so like to me it becomes very much about this kind of weird tension management if yeah. you can figure out yeah. again like just the structure inside which you can work and, and now it's bounded you know like you know when you're done like you know like I'll write like I'll 
decide I'm going to write, you know, about the group of seven. Well, you know, there's this many members of the group of seven. I can write a poem for each. They don't have to be about the group of seven. Well, you added, have, some, you know, added some extra ones. Well, those are all they're, the people associated really. with the group yeah. of seven, yeah. right? Yeah. But like, there's, there, that was the thing that I liked is like group of seven. You look them up. It's like, well, there's 12 members of the group of seven. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, like that's right in my alley, you know, like this weird, you know, almost art, like it's, it's a structure, but it's also got an arbitrary aspect yeah. to it. And I think like that kind of, to me, like writing is all about managing those weird tensions. And uh, anyway, what, what I like about what you're talking about is like the, you got like this, again, the idea of like the BP Nicolesque like martyrology, like so this like lifelong mm-hmm. poem that again, like you could carry from book to book, but at the same time, like it has this madcap nature, you know, and Nickel is, you know, and then, you know, to pull in the KSW influence, like, uh, like, there's just this really interesting, I don't know, I want to just pull a particular moment. Yeah, of course. So you've of got course. like a, this page, The After Party is the name of the poem, but, it, it, you know, you have this great line in here. Um, if you've got beef, milk it to stringency. I love, <laughs> if you love architecture, you have ghosts. Uh, you know, like, I'm curious, like, about, like, so one of the things that you're doing in those lines or in general is you're really using like those line breaks, those enjambments, yeah. you know, in an interesting way. So like, I see that, um, but like if you've got, I just am curious about a line like that. So if you've got beef, milk it to stringency. <laughs> like, uh, like to me, that's, that's a brilliant line, uh, for so many reasons. Uh, one, you've got like these different meanings of the word beef, you know, right? Like you've got like you know, got beef, like the old, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, political uh, saying that became kind of an advertise, you know, coming from an advertisement. So like you pull in these two realms of like the, the, uh, like capitalist infiltration of, you know, political culture on, on one and, and pop culture. Mm. You've got like just the ra- how rappers use the word beef. You've got like a, this, this con- contestation with another person. You can yep. milk that, you know, <laughs> for for your own purposes. Or even like you've got the weird like beef and milk, you know, as, as foods. You know, it, yeah. it's such a weird. Yeah. There's also just weird ways like the, the the lines work, and they're very funny and strange and like stringency, like the idea that you've, you've got this beef that has like this texture, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a little I'm curious, gross, So can you it? talk about that? Do you remember like when you wrote that line or um, how you wrote that line? I mean, I do somewhat, I mean, def- definitely a lot of, de- definitely a lot of this proceeds by, um, it proceeds sloganistically, you know, mm. I'm attracted, I'm attracted to, to the, the s- s- slogans and little bits of kind of indelible speech that, you know, uh, why is that? What do, what do you like to about your brain? That kind of? Um, I mean, I, I think that on one hand they are imbued with this kind of underrated poeticity that, that is just, it's just a, almost a structure of thought that everybody takes for granted. You know, they're incredible. I mean, this not cynically, I like the sounds of a lot of them. I notice people always, and it, obviously this, these reference points change micro generationally. But one thing that I'm really fascinated by that I think is maybe part of the pulse of the whole poem is I'm really, really fascinated by 
the kind of sonic underpinnings of thought and of conceptuality, like the way that people think after the fashion of metrical ready-mades and are attracted to grammatical parallelism and so on. And so often we find ourselves actually um, speaking and thinking and formulating ideas after the fashion of advertising slogans. Just um, that's a one mode in which all of our thoughts are kind of, if not collective, secondhand, you know? And I'm also attracted to the, I'm also attracted to the cheapness of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a great line because it, there's like a cheapness and a silliness to it. But it also, like, if you actually sit there and think about the possible meanings the line could have, it, like, it operates in this weird, dense way. Like, it's a very light, tossed-off line that you, you could easily overlook. But I think it has, like, this density to it, weirdly. Like, if you actually start thinking through the... Which, of course, like, nobody would do. Well... <laughs> but, like, 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 I started doing except it. Except you but, now. Which, yeah, like, I felt, I think, like, it's like it's a kind of... Um, I, I'm really attracted to that sort of thing. But even just, like you say, like, just words. Like, like I've been trying for... It reminds me of, like... I've been trying for years, at least, you know, three, four or five years to get the word fleek into a poem, <laughs> like on fleek. And I finally did it in uh, National Gallery. But yeah. that's like, I mean, again, almost no one's going to notice that. But like, I've been trying to like get the word fleek to work in a poem forever. And like, that's <laughs> literally the impetus for writing a poem sometimes to be is like, can I get fleek in here? Yeah. <laughs> and there's, what's the, there's no reason for it other than I like, I like how it sounds. I like this weirdness of um, junk culture, like crashing against the, like in this, my example, I, I put it in like a Rilke inspired poem, but then in the poem is also about, so it's like this very high arch, like, you know, tradition of, you know, uh, male romanticism and poetry, then crash against like this thing, like some, you know, like young black woman on YouTube said once. <laughs> and then at the same time, it's got like this, um, and then it, it, I'm doing it inside of a poem that's like an elegy, but for a dead phone, <laughs> you know? Like, so like, I like those tensions a lot. I, I think that so much poetry is, mind you, not very much that I read or I'm terribly interested in. So I think it's weird to even evoke it um, antagonistically or, or for my own kinds of comparative rhetorical purposes. But, but let's say so much poetry is really guarded against uh, the everyday, even in, or this is, this, is, this is the paradox that I think can be fatal, um, even insofar as it's supposed to be very occasional and companionable and so on. But there are whole vocabularies that you just don't, mm -hmm. that it doesn't admit of. There's um, kind of a strategic unconcern for the actual like lexical matter of... Yeah. Every day, yeah. Like somebody will write a poem about working in their garden, what they realize about life, but they won't mention like the brand of the garden gloves. Yeah, like that's to me yeah. like the fresh, the thing that I don't, or like what type of manure do they buy at the store? <laughs> like, you know, totally. And I, and I and I mean, I think it has to do with a kind of romantic obfuscation of. Well, you know, like a, like a like a kind of a kind of 
obvious commodification that, mm-hmm. that, that I understand why somebody might think that there's like a lyric impetus to poetry that, um, is, is, is in contradiction to the logic of the commodity form or something. But, but I, but I'm not so interested in the kind of romantic anti-capitalism that's just about, um, a sort of a retreat into rusticity and pure use value that doesn't admit of the commercial and the commodified. I, I think you have to uh, traverse that yeah, material. Like, I feel like the the lie of poetry of the, of this kind of romantic lyricism in poetry is that it is an anti capitalist approach. Whereas I I think that. I think what poetry needs to contend with is the fact that like romantic lyricism is how we've managed to take our emotional life and sell it, yeah. and, you know, and rep- like represent it in a saleable object that, you know, now we can build a career from and so on. And like, I don't, while I think like it's fine for poetry to do that on some level, but it should acknowledge and be interested in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like, so I'm really interested in, I, like personally, I'm really interested in, um, uh, like, 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 I'm really interested in the the forms of language that have a hollowness to them, if that makes sense. Uh, particularly, like, like I'm really interested in religious language, but as an atheist, like, I really love mm-hmm. spiritual um, psalms and like the, the I really love like religious poetry, but I you know have no belief in that at all, and I, I like like the form of it as a sort of weird, empty and hollowed thing. And, and, but that had, still retains like a weird, I don't know, like superstitious magic to me. And, and, but I feel like I can't like use it without somehow filling it up with, um, like a skepticism, if that makes sense or, or like, but one that doesn't just, isn't just cynical. And so like what I like about the kind of approaches you've got in this book is you've got, I mean, you'll write about like sitting on the bus, you know, and, and like, is this it, but it's, and it kind of walks that weird line between, um, like a lyricism, you know, and just kind of discussing an ex- the emotional experience of, you know, traveling on the bus, say, but then you'll kind of acknowledge like certain, um, like the weird way in which, you know, you're inside of these structures, uh, and literally being carried along by these structures, mm-hmm. you know, and at the same time, the language is sort of doing that uh, on one level to the uh, to that image of you in the poem. Like, I, so I like that self. It's not like a heavy-handed self-awareness, but I like how like you've got that kind of um, I don't know, like that. Um, I don't know what the best way to phrase it is, but you, you know what I'm saying, like, like. It's kind of the poetry is very aware of itself as a thing, and is kind of drawing attention to itself as a thing. But at the same time, it's operating like it's very well crafted. It's, it's operating like you know, with these very you know metrical qualities at times, or these very you've got a lot of assonance, or like these very like traditional craft qualities. You know, like it doesn't look like normal poetry in a manner like conventional poetry but it has a lot of the same sonic qualities at times you know um, like I find that's a hard line to walk just because I know that like when I try to do it it's so it's tricky yeah I'm glad I mean I'm glad to hear it I well to, to, to just just backtrack one point because I'm thankful for that observation I 
I think that that's maybe one one thing that I'm interested in. Um, the the poem's ability to realize uniquely um, as a as a kind of writing that a lot of people are a little bit suspicious of, you know, is that it evinces this like surfeit of form to a lot of people's thinking, you know, that it's just, um, that, that, you know, that, that it's irksome to people in its artifice, you know? And I think that that's, that's, that's really actually very valuable that, that, that it's, already seemingly um, a degree further removed from a kind of naturalistic uh, you, you, how to say you know that well, it's, it's artificial as you say like it's more obviously artificial I'm really like I find that that's in some ways the obvious artificial nature of it uh, I think is gives you this weird opportunity uh, to just point out how artificial normal language is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's why it's really inviting of all kinds of bizarre instances of speech that are themselves really, um, you know, incredibly... In, 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 in incredibly stylized, but um, according to different conventions, you know, and, 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 and you can put it all together in a poem in a way that that's um, every every line seems to alienate every other line, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that that's um, really, really a valuable opportunity. I think it's a special. I think it's I, I, this is not like toward a grand theory of the poem because I don't have one and I'm really not interested in that. I think that wouldn't be productive. But I'm interested in the poetry as an instance of speech that um, alienates whatever its content might be. You know, And I think that that's great for purposes of ideology critique and I think that that is also great... Um, even on the level of cultivating a certain kind of intentionality toward your surroundings, if you're reading the bus, if you're if you're riding the bus, I like that slip. Reading the bus, you know, if you're, if you're a poet, maybe you're reading the bus. But um, I, so so I like I, I I really like that 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 reading that maybe the poem is kind of. Uh, Structurally eccentric of itself, or something. Yeah, well, it's. It, I like that. There's the play and the density at the same time. Like you know, I think a lot of times people feel like they can either be dense or they can be playful, as opposed to you know, looking at instances of language like a pun in an advertisement, mm-hmm. where you are really accomplishing both things, uh, and kind of taking that you know idea into poetry I, I think that's something the KSW is so great at was like yes. and it's so it's the kind of thing I see you know um, you doing in the book especially at moments like that you know that beef line that I really like but 
so like I appreciate that kind of um, I, yeah that kind of tension between like a density and a playfulness if that makes sense yeah well I, I, I think that that's the other thing too is that is that humor is kind of um, forbade from poetry but all of my first fondest associations with poetry and this is probably true for anybody I worked in a children's bookstore for more than a decade mm-hmm. you know so I always was reading loads of poetry ostensibly written for children too um, even over the course of my adult life but my first associations with poetry have to do with um, silliness actually not even not even humor but silliness I mean like you know the idea that it proceeds on the pleasure principle in some way and that it's supposed to give pleasure and be pleasurable and that's it too is a pleasurable instance of speech and that instantly contradicts I think uh, you know most people's kind of prejudicial distance from poetry as something that's very self-serious and this supposedly rarefied cultural activity that you know I think it's a I, I, I think it's an instance of speech too where um, you know, a quite unprecedented degree of playfulness is permitted. And the fact that the, the fact that there's all these popular associations with it that tend instead toward pathos, I don't know. That, that, that's um, hopefully a tension that I, I, I navigate in a way that doesn't seem like merely ironic. Well, thanks so much uh, for talking to me. And again, people can check out Cam's new book, uh, his debut, Romans slash Snowmare. Romans Snowmare. Uh, great little um, object by ARP Books. Um, really beautiful design and really, you know, yeah, great, dense, fun, interesting uh, poems that combine all sorts of, you know, fascinating influences. So thanks so much again for talking to me. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you.